Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, everyone. I'm Bernard Hickey and Peter Bale. Great to see you. Tēnā katoa, Bernard. I mean, it's wonderful to see you and I see you're in your rural island retreat as usual. I mean, when I, when I mentioned the other day that um, Rakino didn't have power, uh, lovely David Coombs, who's our, our sort of top fan, said, Oh, I had a batch on Rakino and it was absolutely marvellous. You know, we can I can arrange with some friends, you can go out there anytime. So yeah, we we are we are happy in Rakino, but you're happy on another island, I believe. Ah yes, another island very close by, not the one with the volcano on it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's heavenly. It's paradise. We've had a sunny day today. I'm absolutely loving living the dream and hoping that in the middle of the hoon there will be a cacophony of, of kaka. Bernard, who did you who did you have lunch with yesterday? Oh, you. Yeah, you which came was to very town. Nice you, came, you came to town and it was lovely to see you, to see you in person. And yeah. you came up with this brilliant idea that we should do this in person on Waiheke sometimes. Ah, yes. Um, I would love to do that. And uh, host uh, Kaka subscribers who want to wander around. Jesus, we don't want them to know where you live, Bernard. That's uh, all right. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone's very kind and nice. Yeah, yeah, true. I listened today, by the way, to to if you ever want to hear a podcast with two men essentially having just sort of sex with each other while talking, was um, Lex Fridman, who's an extraordinarily effective and uh, well-read, well-listened-to podcaster, was interviewing for the fourth time Elon Musk. And I noticed not only does Lex Fridman have an incredible amount of sponsorship, which we don't have, but he's mm. he's also completely in love with... Elon. With Elon. And it was mm. like two oversexed adolescents talking to each other about really important philosophical questions. And the, was it I mean, interesting? Hearing them talk, hearing them, well, I had to stop. I mean, I was listening to it mm. while I was on my bicycle and I had to stop in the end and, and because it was just too ridiculous. Painful. But anyway, we mm. are two mature men who love each other, but not in that way, not in a, not in a naughty way. No, and we love talking about uh, stuff, and we've got a great show today. Because no, we're not going to talk got... about stuff, not stuff.co.nz. We're just talking about things. We're going to talk about things. Now, on speaking of media, though, Bernard, I got very, mm. very grumpy today, and you know I'm not really a grumpy person. I got really pissed off today with it on a media story, and I've stepped into uh, uh, some IED, IEDs, which you know, I, you know, I'm not afraid to step into the multiple IEDs. Stay away from the comments, Peter. <laughs> uh, well, it's not the comments, but it's worse than the comments, actually. But it was an old friend of ours from Reuters News Agency messaged me today and said, what do you think about this story? And she's unable to talk about it on the record, on, on social media, because you know she's working there and doing important work. But it is, so when you when you work at Reuters, and I can't remember quite whether you had would have had this experience, but on stories that involve Israel, you get the most incredible phone calls, or used mm-hmm. to, and probably um, almost certainly still do, from organisations that are set up around the world to say to to accuse you of anti-Israel bias, and mm. the ones that I remember would call you when there was a crisis. They would call you every every hour, every day, and they'd say, "Why is Reuters calling this place Palestine? No, and Palestine doesn't exist." Blah blah blah. 
And so now they all have their own websites. And one of them today, which is called honestreporting.com, uh, which when you look at it, you'll see what its view of honest reporting is. And I may live to regret this because I could be completely wrong on this, but what they're saying is that a bunch of freelance photographers who ended up selling work or working, doing some work uh, on behalf of Reuters, Agence France Press, I think, uh, Associated Press, certainly CNN, were aware of the Hamas attacks on October the 7th, or were at least present when those attacks went through. And mm -hmm. that's how we got those amazing photographs of the, the tanks being attacked and so on, and the breakthroughs mm -hmm. of the fence, because they were done from inside Gaza by to my mind, courageous and and effective, Ooh. and well, I bet a few of whom are now dead. It will exactly, exactly. Mm. This is the problem as well, and so this the this organisation and the Israeli government has now jumped on this, and so have many others to say uh, that these these freelance photographers were part of the deal. Therefore, Reuters and AP and CNN had foreknowledge of the attacks on October the seventh, and you know they witnessed atrocities and blah 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 blah. So they've essentially put a put a price on the heads of these uh, men. I think they're mostly men, but certainly half a dozen freelance um, Gazan photographers. Uh, and I find it utterly reprehensible. The mm -hmm. Israeli government is talking about it. It's forced Reuters into a into a sort of rather uncomfortable set of statements. CNN has stopped working with these freelance reporters, freelance photographers rather than reporters. And what it is, of course, Bernard, as you know, it's a dead cat. It's saying. Don't trust anything come out of there. These scenes are coming out of there. Hamas is generating it. It's all about distracting us from what's really going on in Gaza. It's an appalling thing. And then it made me made me today really think about those um, IDF soldiers who shot theoretically accidentally the Shireen from um, from Al Jazeera. You know, this mm. is really dangerous stuff. And I, mm. I hope that when the New Zealand media picks up the story, it does it with some intelligence. But just really, I mean, I'd say to our readers, our watchers, be really careful about the story because I might be completely wrong, you know. But I, I also the the idea that a Gazan living a Gazan journalist or photographer living in Gaza is not does not have links to in, in in the sense of meeting on the street Hamas and that Hamas also wouldn't believe that those people are useful mm. um, conduits for telling the story about what's going on in Gaza. That is normal journalism. You have mm. very un some very uncomfortable bedfellows in uncomfortable places. It does not mean that those people are Hamas activists no. or operatives. And it's a, not just a real worry, it's a tragedy that um, this particular war has taken such a high toll on all sorts of people. Yeah, I think, is it 28 journalists now already? Or something? Yeah, and, and then the and 48 UN workers? It's absolutely yeah, extraordinary, yeah. It's it's awful. And you, um, I'm lucky in a way in that the last 30 years I've focused my work on economics and politics mm. and markets and and it's all very safe and and reasonably um until you start inviting your listeners to your house but, yeah, carry on. <laughs> um, but i've never really uh gotten into the business of war reporting and i know that you've been in a position of of being an editor and assigning people into war zones and yes. working with reporters filing copy and looking after the the interests of, of war reporters, yes, and being there, and being my, they're being there myself, and you know, mm, Kuwait, mm. Sarajevo, Belgrade, mm. um, yes, but uh, but not. I don't mean to sound like a wanker saying that, but it's mm. it's 
one of the things that helps when you are supervising people in those situations is uh, having been to some of those situations yourselves and realizing mm -hmm. how dangerous and difficult it can be. And I think when we think of people going in not embedded, but just because they want to tell the story, then I have a, a great deal of uh, admiration and respect and I want them to be safe. Yeah. I, I may live to regret this because this, this Israeli organization also published a picture of one of the leaders of Hamas kissing this journalist. And as you know, holding hands, kissing and everything is a, is a very sort of male to male thing that goes on in, um, in that part of the world. But if I were Hamas, I would want a very close relationship with the foreign journalists or the people who are representing foreign agencies in, my, in, in Gaza. And I absolutely would give them a heads up that there was something going to happen, you know, in an, you know, you, it's not unusual for, I mean, no. we used to, we used to get calls from the IRA in particularly at London at Reuters, usually with the, the IRA had a code where they would give you, this, you at one point it was a flower. They would speak, they would use the name of a flower. And that was a confirmation that the police also held like a, like a sort of two way code to understand that it was a genuine call. And what they were doing was using us as a conduit, in a sense, to say there's going to be a bomb at the stock exchange shortly. You know, daffodil. Hmm. You know, this is this is how we know about things and how we 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 get to places in time to be there when they happen. And the fact that this is now being weaponized by both sides, I'm sure, is it's a it's a really concerning trend. Yeah, I mean, this is this has become a war of words and a war of media and a war mm. of you know massive killing. I mean, I, I wrote that thing this week that you saw on the spinoff, Bernard. Mm. With you know, it's very difficult to argue about the, the ten times the killing, which is not to say that those you know mm. atrocities on on October the seventh didn't happen or have been forgotten in any way. But um, you know, this is this is where this conflict conflict has gone now, and I I think I I think I do understand why why Israel is prosecuting it the way it is. But maybe we'll talk that a bit more when Robert Patton yeah. comes on. Meanwhile, yes. Catherine, which bucolic um, paradise are you in? I'm up in Northland at the moment in Oakra. Good which lord! Is, yeah, just north of Whangarei. Oh, fantastic! We're in a in a. Sunny, we're a series of sunny paradises. We're actually very mm. lucky. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think Aotearoa becomes a country with 20 million people by 2100, because we are a climate refuge and we have the biggest moat on the planet. But we've had plenty of uh, climate news this week. Um, great to have you on, Catherine, as our climate mm. correspondent. And um, uh, well, let's start off with some local news. We've had Fonterra. Uh, announce its plans for so-called Scope 3 emissions, which mm. are the climate emissions from the farms themselves. And this is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. It gets really awkward and painful and difficult. Could you tell us what Fonterra have announced and and what it might mean? Yeah, so Scope 3 emissions apply to your supply chain. So it's the ones that you don't necessarily directly control as a company. So Fonterra has something like 50% reduction targets for CO2 emissions that they directly control. But Scope 3 is their supply chain, which is the farmers. And what they've agreed to, I believe, is a target of 30% improvement in emissions efficiency. So that means per kilogram of milk solids, not necessarily total emissions. That's right. Yep. And so we've got a lot of people saying, well, that's really not good enough. You need to have absolute emissions reductions and not just relative emissions reductions. But um, I would say this is not entirely a bad thing. There's some really 
good parts to it. I mean, in particular, over the last, I would say probably over the last decade, a lot of the um, flattening in emissions that we've had um, or in what they term the warming impact of emissions of methane in particular in New Zealand has come from improvements in emissions efficiency. And it's all it does result in absolute emissions reductions as long as you don't increase, for instance, your herd sizes to make up for the reduction in efficiency. And over the last 10 years, that hasn't been the case. And in fact, in dairy in New Zealand, the herd sizes have come down a little bit mm. over that time period. So we have actually been able to bank those Mm. Um, emissions reductions. And so there's no reason to believe that necessarily is going to change. And there is obviously some other pressure, um, downward pressure from from the government in terms of the um, emissions targets in the longer term. It's, it's, um, it's positive news that Fonterra have gone into this in depth and it's a thoughtful, detailed policy. It's not just some sort of um, vague waving of the hand uh, that sometimes we've seen from others. This is really down in the in the weeds looking exactly where the this thirty percent is going to come from, including some new technology and some increase of mm. carbon sinks in uh, vegetation and forests on farms. Yeah. So, so that, you know, it's it's a it's a real thing. Bernard, can I pay you a compliment though? You've you've been talking about this for since I've been back from the overseas. You've been talking about this for nearly three years, and it's it's hitting home now. I think you've been a real mm. leader. I haven't read this kind of detailed idea about the, the consequences for New Zealand and if Fonterra is recognizing it, that they won't you know that there'll be a it's fantastic. So thank you for that. Yeah, this is market no, forces at work also, no, a lot of what's happening exactly. here. And I think yeah. where the government has failed to really do a lot in terms of of the stuff in New Zealand, it's market forces that are going to end up doing the job. And this is one of the first signs of it. Um, if you if you really wanted a significant rapid decrease in absolute emissions, you would really need the government involved in that. I mean, no company is going to walk up and say, I'm going to downscale my whole operation voluntarily. That's that's not how companies operate. That's not going to happen, you know. No. So if you if you want that, it's the government you need to look to. And and at some point the government is going to have to use its balance sheet and its PL, if you like, its taxes and its spending to accelerate this because Yes, it is a significant change, but compared to others, including Nestle, um, which is Fonterra's biggest customer, there's a lot more work to do. And it's interesting that uh, even in the Pacific Islands Forum meetings this week, there's been specific calls from Vanuatu's foreign minister, from a German uh, climate uh, minister at the uh, forum to the incoming government, who aren't even formed yet, to say, Please don't restart uh, exploration for gas and oil. It's the last thing the Pacific needs from a climate change point of view. And you can see how lots of voters want to close their ears and and uh, get back in their double cab suits. But our trading partners and our diplomatic partners, they are watching us. And they are, are saying, hey, you need to pull your weight. Yeah, and it fits, it fits, doesn't it, Catherine Bernard, with the Robert Patman idea that, that New Zealand has to represent the interests of small non-aligned states. I, I was really struck by, uh, I don't know why, look, I haven't met Jerry Brownlee, but I find him bordering on the ridiculous, his remark that, oh, well, we can allow exploration, but if, if, the, if it becomes uh, actual production, that's a, that's a commercial decision. That's not a government decision. I mean, I, I actually, as you know, but I tend to support exploration, particularly for gas, 
because I do accept the idea that it's a transitional thing. However, it may not actually be for New Zealand. Oh, Catherine's laughing at me. We now. have Is a that story different? for you coming up. <laughs> <laughs> have, yes. I just, have I just swallowed fossil fuel industry bollocks number two? Yeah. No, no, it's a yeah. perfect segue. It's a segue into Catherine talking about a big Great. UN report that came out this week. Thank yeah, you, so the U, the UNEP, which is the United Nations Environment Division, has put out a, a report on the production gap. So that's looking at the difference between what we would need to do in terms of reducing fossil fuel production to achieve one and a half degrees or two degrees of warming and what countries are actually planning or what governments are actually planning. And there's a massive gap. Um, so at the moment, that gap is something like they're planning, countries are planning to produce fossil fuels um, to, the, to something like 110% of what you would need above what you would need to achieve 1.5 degrees and nearly 70% above what we, what you would need to achieve two degrees of warming. So wow. they're going well ahead of either of those things. So essentially we're producing twice as much fossil fuel as is consistent with the level of warming that is the least dangerous. And we're about to go and look for a hell of a lot more of it. Yeah, and and not only that, it's the the gap hasn't improved since they started measuring it in two thousand nineteen. So this isn't going anywhere good over the last um, five years at least. And according to sort of some of the plans in place, it's going to increase over the next ten years till twenty thirty. Um, you know, before anything starts to, and then it sort of tails off a little bit. But we still end up by twenty fifty burning more fossil fuels than we do today. Mm. Um, so that's really inconsistent with achieving net zero by 2050, obviously. It's also inconsistent with most of those producing states. Um, it's completely inconsistent with 17 of them have net zero pledges that they've made yeah. under the Paris Agreement. So do we need to do we need to help do we need to work out a way to send you slash the Kaka, i.e. you, uh, Catherine, to Dubai? Because I mean, we'd be sending you on a fairly high-speed catamaran, I think, with in the Greta, <laughs> yeah. the Greta Thunberg method. But, but the I haven't re, I, I, just at the moment, and I don't quite know why this is because you've had wonderful climate journalists. You know, the climate journalism is now a really great area, but I haven't heard too much around why this whole area of this. Oh, we're going to you know we're going to reopen reopen. It's not just conservative. You know, it was the conservative government of the UK in the King's speech. I mean, King Charles more or less just about swallowed his crown. When he had to announce, I wonder that they what would... he thought. I, I wonder what he thought when he was reading that out, because he spent he literally thought, he thought decades. Yeah, he thought I'm the, I'm the king. I just have to read this shit. But it just it, you know the 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 UK has decided to have I think an annual or, or twice a year carbon territory you know auction in the North Sea. Almost certainly we'll have that in the in the first ninety days of a national government, won't we? And other people are doing it. They actually, in this in this report, they looked at the top 20 fossil fuel producing states um, and not a single one of them has pledged to decrease their fossil fuel production, not one. I mean, look at, I mean, look at the United States. I mean, you've got, you've got the, you've got the, we, we, you know, Biden clearly has done a brilliant job and to some extent with the uh, Anti-Inflation Act, which is, you know, but there's still what, I think they've, they're more drilling in, in Alaska. I don't think they've decided on drilling in national parks, but the Permian Basin is going, you know, is going hell for leather on on fracking. And they're putting in a huge amount of infrastructure to export LNG, um, and that that stuff. Leaks. Having not exported any a few years ago, yeah. 
Yeah, mm. the more research we do about the the amount of methane that leaks from those things, the worse the picture gets. I mean, and also when you compress, the, what you need to do to compress the gas into canisters to send overseas, that mm. has huge CO two emissions. It's worse, worse than coal. Well, when, when you say can, when you when you say canisters, I, I do remember going to the northwest shelf uh, when I used to cover BHP and. Uh, oh really. Oh yes, yes, Bernard. It wasn't when, when I wasn't covering war. I was I was flying around the world with BHP and Woodside Petroleum, and yeah, the, when you say canisters, these are gigantic ships with you know mm. sort of ship-sized equivalents of the ones you pick up at Z uh, when you're doing your barbecue. But I imagine yeah. you use charcoal. Well, you don't want to be doing any open flames near those things. Those no, are that's bad. right. Well, in fact, they had a an entire wharf that if if, if something happened, broke away from the from northwestern Australia with the ship. <laughs> to to avoid that happening. Sorry, I, I digress as as is my want. But Catherine, this yeah. is really serious shit, isn't it? Yeah, and they actually say in the report in reference to gas as a bridging um, mechanism, mm. they said, you know, a lot of countries make that argument that that moving to gas is a is a bridging thing, but not a one of them has got a plan to eventually get off the bridge. You know, they they're just planning to stay there. Yeah, I think I just no, I think I just made that argument about bridging. Yep, yep, okay. Yep. I am an old conservative <laughs> fart, you're right. Yep. And wrong. You could also make a link between this actually and the last story about um agricultural emissions in New Zealand. If not a one of the major producing countries of fossil fuels has agreed yeah. to to make any reductions, then you know, you do have to, from an international relations perspective and from a negotiation perspective, why would New Zealand walk in and say we're going to reduce production of our major, you know, greenhouse gas? Catherine, that's an absolutely perfect segue. Do you want to, is it right? Can I segue to Robert Bernard? Go for your life. Yes. yes I mean, yes. I was going to segue saying, oh, you know, speaking of speaking of conservative old men, which is what I, how I just described myself, Robert, not you. No, but we're, Robert, we we, we brought you up thinkers. in the Catherine. We brought you up in the Catherine session on the environment because, uh, just for for a brief moment before we get into sort of different international affairs things, but Vanuatu's request a German, I think you said a German politician's request at Vanuatu, or climate yep. activist request that New Zealand not reopen. Uh, oil and gas exploration. At the same time, they're opening up deep sea mining um, opportunities well, oh, yeah. in the Pacific oh, Islands. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> dig away. We can't see it. We just <laughs> dig away. I'm not approving of any of these things, but you know, you kind of go. Everybody's at it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, and Robert, the, the Germans are shutting down their nuclear power stations yeah, way and opening early. up coal mines. Um, but anyway, Robert, uh, I was really struck by one one aspect of that, which is you know one of the things that you've said so often is. Um, and I don't mean that you've you've said it too often. You've just said it often, and you and it's a sort of Robert Patman mainstay, which is that as a small country, <laughs> no, 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 this, I'm not. It, it's a really important thing, and I and I think it doesn't get said enough enough, even by you, um, that New Zealand can and should have a role in leading smaller states to towards collective views on some of these things. And here, mm. Vanuatu has asked us, in a sense, to take a leadership role with with not on on the climate. You know, we, we've all got our pants slightly down. Not, not. I mean, not literally the four of us. That would be appalling, five yeah. of us. But um, you know, there's, there's there's a bit of a problem here that we're not acting. Yes, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because not so long ago, and I think Australia have taken a seventy strong delegation to the Pacific Island mm. Forum. The Vanuatu Foreign Minister complained they had not been consulted. Uh, about the formation of orcas mm. and Australia's participation, oh, yeah. and also Australia's mm willingness to sign an agreement with its AUKUS partners, which involved the transfer of nuclear power submarines to Australia, 
which, of course, uh, a number of Pacific Island countries see as a, perhaps a challenge to the Treaty of Rarotonga. Mm. So it, it's interesting. Um, we have, as a country, tried to put a great emphasis on regional agreement, but it is a two-way street. And it does mean that Pacific Island states feel uh, they perhaps have a right to comment on things here and what we are intending to do. So I'd be very interested to see whether the national government feels constrained mm. by such observations or whether they get a curt sort of mind your own business. I don't think they'll get a curt mind your own business because uh, I think that would make us look very hypocritical. But um, uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the new national-led government plays this one. Mm. It is unfortunate, isn't it, Robert, that at the Pacific Islands Forum, we don't really have a, a clear leadership. We've got no, this... No, we have the um, Caramel Brownlee. The Caramel Brownlee. <laughs> that is... I mean, there's part of me that says, what a New Zealand way to do it, yeah. right? You've got the, you've got the yeah. Deputy Prime Minister uh, going down the gangplank with the opposition's uh, foreign affairs spokesman right behind her, they clearly actually like each other a little bit. And, you know, yep. it's, 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 it's sort of fun, actually. But couldn't we, why, why couldn't we do that with APEC, actually, that, that, that the, two, the two Christophers go, Chris and Christopher go? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just have a chat to one of our Chris's. Yeah. <laughs> After all, they said that uh, they both share a bipartisan foreign policy, mm. so they could go Pretty and demonstrate much. it. Well, yeah. That's not a bad um, idea, actually, because it doesn't look exactly. like there is going to be a government in place before APEC. Certainly, we've missed out on the Pacific Islands Forum. But these are crucial big events where, you know, massive stuff is being discussed. There's going to be, certainly for APEC, there's going to be Joe Biden talking to uh, Xi Jinping, Pacific Islands Forum. It's all very hot right now. I mean, uh, Robert, it's, it's, it is sort of disappointing that we haven't quite got a government in place before these things. Yeah, but I think the whole interregnum has been pretty disappointing. I mean, in the sense that um, I wasn't just thinking we've got a result now, obviously since the 3rd of November, a definitive result. But I was thinking just on the question of our inability to actually put across quite clear messages on the international stage while there was no differences between the incoming and the outgoing government, largely. And yet they couldn't get together and issue joint statements, which I found a bit frustrating. As we all know, there's been some really major developments going on. And I think overall, when we've eventually reached a position, it's been sensible, but it's taken mm. a lot of time. And I think I, I think New Zealand has to get more used to the idea that the rest of the world does notice what goes on here. There is a tendency here to think that we're the best little country in the world. No one takes any notice of us and they don't uh, they don't observe what's going on. Well, they do. They, they, they like it when we do good things, but they also notice when we drop the ball. We're just going to move to Nathan, Nathan Rariri to do, to do 40 minutes on the, on the black caps. Sorry, carry on, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I no. think you're probably his comments would be more appreciated. My, I always enjoy well, him. He is bloody funny. Um, yes. He, he's he good, is. Yeah. He's terrific. No, no, um, but it's, great uh, it, is, it, is, it is important what we are doing and saying, and uh, particularly in the Pacific at the moment, where... You know, not only you've got two big stories that are coming together at yeah. once. You've got the US versus China strategic competition, and you've got climate change. So Pacific Islands Forum, it's a big deal. And AUKUS. I mean, the number of Pacific Island leaders say they want to be having a word mm. with mm. New Zealand and Australia on this issue. So I think it's quite a sensitive issue. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Bernard. And uh, uh, I don't know how else we could have done it. I suppose, in a sense, having the outgoing deputy... Prime Minister mm -hmm. and the 
in well, I'm not sure if Jerry Brown is going to be the new foreign minister. Well, we don't know. No, I think we wow. know. I think we think it's going wow. to be. I, okay, I bet Winston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm happy to take. Uh, to, I'm not to a betting not, person. So. No, no, I'm not going to take that bet because I also think it'll be Winston, and I, Jerry. I think it probably will be. Yeah. yeah, and Jerry is the Speaker of Parliament. But it is interesting. The more he's he's out there um, saying things, uh, it's interesting. He's going to get an interview tomorrow on Sunday morning on Q and A. Who's out there? You mean Luxon or, or Brownlee? Uh, Brownlee. Yeah. I mean, in a way, he's in a he's in a de facto foreign minister role, sort of, at the moment. And he's going to be speaking on Sunday on Q and A as what? <laughs> he's not sworn in as foreign minister. Well, he, to be fair to Jerry Brownlee, he has got some foreign policy experience, Absolutely. and he's reasonably yeah. solid mm. in that area. And uh, I don't know. I have a feeling a lot of national supporters, I mean, the ones who are committed, may be quite the, they may be quite concerned if national lose control of the foreign affairs portfolio. Yeah. I mean, it is a, you know, it, it is a major role. It's the face that the country presents to the world. And I don't know. On inter- I know we discussed <coughs> this before, but it's going to be a really interesting one. Mm. And it may even be an indicator of how strong um Christopher Luxon's position yeah, is absolutely. in relation to the coalition partners. Yeah, I mean, we're, Robert, we're pushing pushing you away from you. Know, you're the professor of international bloody affairs, not not you know Wellington affairs. Now, can we can we just revert to some extent? Let's <laughs> let's talk about the war that's gone a bit quiet in our media for a while and Ukraine. And mm. um, we've had, I don't know whether you saw my my spinoff piece this week, but it's you know it, it, trying to deal with this question of the mm. the um, Ukrainian uh, chief of staff saying we're essentially in stalemate. He didn't, he, you know, he, he talked about stalemate in an interview, but then in the single piece he talked about positional war and essentially looking for another way, mostly technology, to confront the Russians, but essentially saying that the prediction of a stalemate has proven to be correct. The Russians are very well dug, dug in. Mm. But I, would you think that this war is still going to be going in a year? With a Trump presidency, very difficult and- to know, isn't it? Um, I thought of the, the Ukrainians may have made more progress by now, but I don't think our friend Phillips O'Brien, of course, mm. I, I have a lot of time for him. He thinks, and I tend to agree with him, that what the great achievement of the counteroffensive has not been in terms of land seas, but in the degradation, the systematic mm-hmm. degradation of uh, Russia's military capabilities, which has gone on relentlessly, and. Uh, they are they're losing a lot of equipment and 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 individuals uh, soldiers some battles they've lost a thousand a day i mean this mm. is even for russia so we don't know i mean what 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 i'm saying is if you look at past conflicts peter uh, you look at vietnam iraq other conflicts afghanistan there are times where things seem to be standing still and then you get sudden movement and i'm just wondering if we're reaching a point where uh, there's been, particularly with the F-16s and other military capabilities coming Ukraine's way. Now, there's a big question mark about the US, as we discussed before. I see the Pentagon, by the way, has made a, an imploring statement to uh, uh, Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I must say, to say, to say what, the, please, please make a decision and give us our, give us our stuff so we can send imploring it over. for more, yeah, to give the green light to more assistance for Ukraine. But um, it, it seems to me that. Uh, if you anybody who if there is a change of government, I, I think the prospect of Ukraine getting much support, unless it's uh, uh, unless it's Miss Haley who gets the mm. nod, uh, is very unlikely. And since Donald Trump's likely, if if he still 
you know, um, how should I put it, a free person. I mean, it's so it's such an I, I sort of glommed on to but Bernard when you when before you got here, Bernard was talking about you know New Zealand being an oasis in the South Pacific, and even if we do drill for oil and gas, at least we'll have some oil and gas so we can you know burn the burn the torches, but. If Trump gets back in and he's what leading in five marginal state, five of the marginal um, states that went for Biden are now he's leading significantly according to the opinion polls. It's a pretty terrifying situation. It is, apart from the fact the Republicans got devastated natural elections. Oh yeah, mm. that was the big news this week. Uh, that oh, was right a after... crushing defeat for the Republicans, mm. and it's not where they should be, as Sean Hannity on Fox mm. said. This is not where we should be if no. we're going to make the White House. So they've got absolutely drubbed. It's it's weird, isn't it? I and mean, when you look at the polls for yeah. Biden versus Trump, it says Trump's ahead. But when you actually have the elections, you do wonder about whether the polls are capturing all these well, young I think Democrats. the abortion issue. Yeah. I think the Democrats very shrewdly uh, targeted the abortion issue. And I think many Americans feel very uncomfortable about the direction. Yes. The Republican Party on some of these issues. Yeah, Robert. So, what about Israel? Let's let's move to Israel. Israel Hamas. I I had a bit of a tantrum. Not a tantrum. I had a bit of a calm tantrum with. Uh, Surely not. Thing. No, exactly. I know. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine because that of, at because all. of an Israeli sort of um, distraction tactic today about about uh, uh, Gazan journalists photographers being uh, implicated supposedly yeah. in the October seventh activities. There is a gigantic global distraction going on, attempted distraction from what's actually happening in Gaza, which, I mean, I, I, I was listening to, I, I may have said this to you, well, I haven't said this to you, there's a wonderful podcast that I listen to a lot, uh, Unholy Two Jews on the News, with Israel's most important uh, news journalist announcer, Yonit Levy, and in this one, and she's on it with The Guardian's um, Jonathan Friedland, and she was attacking him yeah. in a sense, or saying, I need to have a conversation with you, and they did a very brave call. But at one point, she was saying, well, no, we, we warned them to go south. And then the trouble is, and, and of course, and she said, you know, nobody, no, you know, Hamas didn't warn anybody to go north when we, you know, when they were attacked on October the 7th. But if you're attacking Khan Yunus, which is essentially a 40-year-old refugee camp in the quite far south in Gaza, there is no further south to go. No, and I agree with what you're saying. And uh it's all very well saying go south, but some of the, uh, at least two Al Jazeera journalists have been killed going south with their families. And mm -hmm. uh, so it, there's no safe place. Everybody, journalists, and as well as citizens interviewed there, have indicated there's no, um, if you like, fire-free zone. No. And uh, they are under blockade. They, I mean, they're in a, basically they're trapped. And they're, 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 there's no real safe place they can go to. And the other thing is, I'm not sure how long, there seems to be such a disconnect developing now between many Western leaders yeah. and their population. People are on the street, to use that awful phrase. Well, but they're on the street in huge numbers too. I mean, it, it, as you know, it's causing yeah. tremendous upset in the UK where Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, is in the, deep yeah, It looks like it could almost have violence in the UK. It, it's getting I think really... it will this weekend because the Home Secretary there is setting it up for it to be violent, because essentially she's inviting the right wing to cause a confrontation on. Yes, and um, Douglas Murray seems to be gleefully oh, wading in. Not, I, I just sent I just sent him an extremely rude message on Twitter. Actually, no. Oh. Well, <laughs> the, I do feel that um, 
some of the Western governments, there is some interesting developments. Belgium and Spain seem to be now backtracking quite spectacularly. Mm. Although, to be fair to Spain, they were probably the least enthusiastic of the EU countries in giving Mr. Netanyahu a blank mm. check. Uh, the problems with blank checks, they sometimes bounce, don't they? So Yeah, well, did you... Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, I'm just... Yeah, I think we need to... Yeah, if you've got a column coming that's for the right, bloody yeah. ODT again. No. I, mean, the, <laughs> no. I mean, that is... That is no, that's a great line. The, the line from Biden today, when asked if there was going to be a ceasefire, he said, he said, absolutely not. There will be no ceasefire. But Mr. Biden's... The administration itself seems to be really divided now. One senior uh, member of the administration was saying, we work at Joe Biden's dis mm. at his discretion and pleasure, or worse to that effect, and therefore we mm. can't say too much. But they are, the State Department had a major resignation. And oh. also, did you see that the congressional staffers walked out on Congress and had, an, I think, an hour-long demonstration to show their displeasure? Wow. The, the images that many people are seeing around the world of so many thousands of children killed is leading to a major blowback. And the question is, how quickly can Western politicians actually adjust their position to take into account what seems to be revulsion a mm. disproportionate retaliation? I mean, this disproportionate aspect is so, is so difficult and so important because it, it is a, an understandable war aim to encircle Gaza City and try to destroy the tunnels and to, to try to destroy Hamas. But the consequences are so gigantic. And you can see it uh, ripping apart the sort of um, centre-left progressive parties in and out of government all around the world. In the United States, the Democrats, I mean, apart from this election victory this week, have been at loggerheads much mm. more than that. As you say, it's it's a very you know, live and painful split that's going on in the UK uh, with the, the Labour Party. You've seen resignations there from the front bench. Um, it's sort of amazing, actually, that it, it ap apart from some uh, pretty ugly noise within the Greens, there hasn't been the same level of grief within the centre-left here. Not yet. No, what I think is interesting, though, uh, Bernard, is that I do think it's becoming a quite a polarising issue in New Zealand. Absolutely. And that's because yep. we haven't had, I think, as much clear leadership as we could have on Ooh. this issue. Hopefully that will be resolved shortly. Um, I th as I said before, I think what New Zealand has done uh, has been pretty sensible. I, I was pleased that we voted for a, in the General Assembly in the way that we did. We backed two-thirds. And I think our general position is that we do want an immediate ceasefire and I, th I think given the urgency of the situation, I mean, uh, the, uh, the Biden administration, to me, seems to be incredibly weak in relation to Mr. Netanyahu. They're, after all, US taxpayers are contributing 10, $11 million a day to Israel's economy and, uh, and providing uh, lots of generous, in terms of mil military support. So they're involved, deeply involved. And I think the United States has a lot of leverage, but it shows mm. absolutely no willingness to use it. Mr. Biden admitted he'd asked Mr. Netanyahu for a three-day humanitarian pause. He got four hours. Mm. Um, mm. And Mr. Netanyahu rubbed it in yeah. by saying, actually, there's not even a pause no. because we do just, you know, rest our offensive every now and again and uh, regroup. So uh, we're not actually doing anything. 
in response to the American request. He didn't put it as bluntly as that, but that was quite clear. And it seems to me that the Biden administration, their initial response uh, was not measured enough, and they're now paying a very big price for it. And I can't see, uh, you know, I, I think this is going to get worse. Yeah, well, I, I, I can see this, Robert, and I, and I, but that because I'm Pollyanna, you know, that I wrote that Robert Frum, I think it was, was talking about, uh, no, no, Franklin, Franklin Foer and the, the, the hug BB strategy. But the trouble yes. is, BB mm. is a porcupine, and he's also a complete bastard, and he's he's you know he's only interested in himself. Careful, Peter, you'll you'll get a lot of <laughs> he's, incensed he's, people. Out he's there. only interested in his own survival, and I I, I quoted Ehud Omert, the former Israeli prime minister, in the in the piece I did this week, uh, who was of course disgraced. He's you know corrupt, like oh. Actually, I think Netanyahu might be facing corruption oh, charges yeah. as well. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, he heard Omit said he calls himself Mr. Security, but he's actually Mr. Bullshit, which I thought was a very nice way to describe Netanyahu. Yeah. There seems to be a widespread view in Israel that as soon as the hostilities subside, Mr. Netanyahu has to go simply because he enabled this Hamas atrocity mm. to occur. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot yeah. of people who believe that. But the, the other thing is that what what really concerns me, and it's come into sharp focus, is not just Mr. Netanyahu, but some of his colleagues in the Israeli government. I know it's an extreme mm. right-wing government. Their comments about the Palestinians, they, yes. you know, are incendiary. They do mm. nothing to reassure people that they're not mm. engaged in some sort of selective treatment of the Palestinians. And it's very, very worrying. It is. One. I, I listened to mm. something by uh, everybody probably listening to this will know Gideon Levy, who's a very liberal, yeah. um, high, probably left a bit of a Noam Chomsky of Israel in a sense, which is an odd conflation of things. But, you know, he was talking about the, you know, the, the sense of superiority and this and the sense of God's chosen people being a problem in this. So a couple of people um, have mentioned about media coverage of this. And we, we started out this thing before you came, Robert. I think we need to get you on at the very beginning, actually, just keep you going and pull the string on your back and let you just talk all day. Because people, be people, people, people are getting grumpy about, um, no, I don't get pet, they're getting, they're getting Pedro fatigue. But the media thing on this is, is, is quite large. It's a huge aspect of this. You've got enormous yeah. demonstrations, and, and and people. Somebody on the on the comments, which I wish I wasn't looking, is using the phrase MSM, which I mainstream media, which I completely hate. But mm. it is quite odd. It seems to me the way the story has been covered in New Zealand. Are we, I think, Radio New Zealand is doing quite a good job in the mornings of having BBC reporters and some local. They've got a couple of their own correspondents, I think, in Jerusalem and in New York and and so on. But it's really not on the front pages of the websites of the major websites. I suspect that's because mm. it's not getting clicked on. But I I don't see them addressing the issues that are actually happening in New Zealand as well, other than possibly the. Um, Graffiti and the and the alleged firebomb on a on a Israeli consulate in Auckland that is adjacent to a progressive synagogue. What do you think about that? What do you think mm. about the way it's being reported here or covered here? I think yeah, I agree that the morning coverage on RNZ and some of the commercial stations is reason reasonably even handed. Uh, there have been complaints. Uh, it's one of those minefields, isn't it? Mm. I, I think that people who feel very strongly about this subject may be inclined to to perceive slights which are not intended. Mm -hmm. I would have liked a little bit 
more of a New Zealand approach to it rather than simply cover, you know, using foreign journalists and calling them our correspondents. But uh, you, we, I suppose that's just, you know, a product of our limited media resources, really. But uh, I do think it is an issue that is very important to most New Zealanders. because well, More important maybe than I they realise, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think many people are outraged by what's going on. After all, this country does believe in rules, mm. and it believes in a rules-based well, order. Lives, and, and it lives by rules, as you as you have said so yeah, eloquently. I mean, we're, the whole country, mm. the founding mm. document, mm. you know, the Treaty of Waitangi, it, it's and about yet, rules. Okay, and yet we end up arguing. So having raised this very, very early in one of my spin-off things, which I keep talking to and probably nobody, nobody reads it, but, you know, from the river to the sea is a very difficult chant because it is very yes. closely associated with the Hamas um, charter. I think people are naive in using it, but is it the biggest issue in this whole thing, especially when the Kud had a similar similar thing in 1970s? Is it the biggest issue? No, it is not. And did they say anything about when Mr. Netanyahu took his map to the United Nations? Mm, no, yeah. I mean, no, no representation of the Palestinian people at all. Yeah, I mean, I think language matters yeah. tremendously in all this, and I've said this about the reporting, but... Yeah. These are not the main issues necessarily. The main issues are more no, than 10,000 people killed. Why? And Israel is actually losing, I think, at the moment, the exp explanatory battle here. And also the silence from the Israeli government about beyond um, the, mm. the next step after the military campaign ends. Are they simply just trying to continue the status quo by which the Palestinians are denied statehood? Mm. And keeping a lid on things, um, it's interesting. Mr. Bl Actually, Anthony Blinken is the one who keeps raising the two-state solution. Of course, I think, with some justification, some seasoned Arab observers say, "Well, he's just providing diplomatic cover for the campaign." But I do think he is quite appalled by what's going on. Let's imagine, Robert, that Netanyahu actually is the one, Mr. Security or Mr. Bullshit, as Ehud Omer said, is the one to say. Actually, the only way Israel survives, not just that I survive anymore, is that we now have to have remote um, proximity talks with Palestinians, not Hamas, probably not even the, the existing leadership of the Palestinian Authority, probably in Norway. Probably, I, noticed, I noticed the other day that the Norwegian foreign minister suggested this, and it's clearly an offer again. And that would require... Mm. You know, a rethink, but it's the it's the sort of if you're Mister Security and you and you're secure about the future of Israel, uh, then maybe Netanyahu could be the person to make to to cross that bridge. Yeah, mm. I I do think though he's a bit of an ideologue, Peter. I don't think he's as mm. pragmatic as he's never show. He he's done his best. I mean, he he was a bitter critic of Mister Rabin, mm. the the person involved in the two state solution, and uh, I understand that. Mr. Rabin's widow uh, was not did not speak kindly about Mr. Netanyahu's no. criticisms of her late husband because he was, her husband was assassinated by a, a, a right wing nationalist in Israel, and uh, so there, there's been no evidence so far in Mr. Netanyahu's career that he could take that sort of step. Now that doesn't mean he will never will. His situation may get to the point. We've all seen politicians, haven't we, who unsay what they've always said. So we can't rule it out, but it, there's not too much evidence for optimism right. at the moment. Hey, thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Talk to you soon.
Thank you very much, Robert. It's lovely to have you on. Um, and you'd have to say we are the ones looking um, in most depth and at length on this issue. Um, we're really uh, proud that we can do it. And um, lovely to see a, a new guest onto the Hoon, Dr. C. Rotman, who is also a, a lovely subscriber to the Kaka and um, an energy researcher who has uh, contributed as a member of the reference group to the Energy Hardship expert panels report that has come out this week. It's lovely to see you, Dr. C. Lovely to see you too, Bernard. We bumped into each other um, a few weeks ago and um, discovered we had a lot in common, apart from anything else, that you were a subscriber to the Kaka, which is fantastic. But also you, you are heavily involved in researching energy issues, energy hardship, energy poverty in uh, Aotearoa. And this report that has come out this week in a sort of a unusual way. Normally these reports are presented by ministers or at least by um, some department, but because of the interregnum between the governments, it sort of fell into a bit of a hole, but we've we've pulled it out and it's here now. Um, and I've done a big piece, for those who haven't seen it yet, on the uh, report itself. And I've interviewed uh, Kerry Brown, the chair of the panel, and looked at its findings and recommendations. But just for those who haven't perhaps seen it, uh, Dr. C, could you give us a sense of what the panel found and what it's recommending? Yeah, sure. Um, kia ora, Bernard. Hi, Peter. Haven't met you yet. Um, it's really great to be on the Kaka. Obviously, huge fan. Um, so the Energy Hardship Report, um, and thanks so much for raising the profile of that, Bernard, because it's such an important piece of work that has been going on for over two years. So uh, MB, following the electricity price review from 2019, there's a lot of things that are obviously wrong with our, um, you know, um, energy system, with our housing system. It causes a lot of hardship. You always talk about how many whānau in this, you know, country are suffering from the biggest rental uh, costs and, and you know, obviously now we have the cost of living crisis, et cetera, and it's affecting more and more and more whānau, as this report has found as well, almost three times as many as we um, estimated, almost 300,000. And, and those people are really, really, really suffering. And so the um, the energy hardship team at MB pulled together an expert panel of five really amazing people who then were supported by us on the reference group. There was, I think, 25 of us from across the mm. sector, industry, community, Pacifica Maori researchers. Um, and uh, it was really, really, really awesome being together and working on this mahi. And we built really close relationships as well. And um, this report was the culmination of this. And it obviously had a lot of recommendations on these seven kete, um, which were around, you know, um, leadership, which is a super important thing because we cannot lose the leadership mm -hmm. in this field. Now that we've just kind of gained traction, it's really important that we keep going around our housing stock. The healthy housing issue is obviously the biggest one that you keep talking about. And this just feeds right into it. It's like one of the main problems around access to energy, around affordability of energy, of course, you know, like, I mean, it really should be in my eyes, a basic human right, especially seeing the taxpayer also pays for a lot of the infrastructure, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, it's around consumer protection. It's around community education, because one of the big issues, of course, is the literacy aspect. We just really, people do not know enough about, they don't understand their bills. There are so many confusing plans. They don't really know how the energy system works. They don't know their rights, their tenancy rights, their you know, util utility dispute rights. 
And so there's a lot of education that needs to be done. And then, of course, what I'm really interested in and what my mahi is, is around research and data and monitoring and evaluation and actually figuring out how big the problem is. Because the biggest issue is there is a lot more whānau that we don't know about that live in hidden hardship that are mm. invisible, that are not covered by any programs. Uh, I know you you say that there is no squeezed middle, and I totally agree. There is no squeezed middle who owns properties, but those who don't, they mm. definitely are teetering on that hardship, you know, cliff and may become the working poor as well. And so, we, you know, there's another issue that industry, for example, doesn't know how many fauna live in a house. And they usually only know what the bill payer does. That's the uh-huh. same with student flatters. You know, the Green Party released a report about the massive poverty in student rental accommodation and stuff. And so there is big issues around that. And like I did Mahi under the SIG fund, which is one of those really great community energy education funds. Um, and, you know, the average uh, household in New Zealand has 2.7 people. And the founder that I talked to had 3.7 people on average in a household. A lot of them had eight to 10 people in a three bedroom house that was, you know, not really livable. And so I I experienced similar, you know, stories and conditions to what the report talks about. And I can only hope that people read it and actually Mm. that the new government reads it as well. Because what you pointed out and what's so important about this is it's good common sense that we keep working on this because it saves money. If you want to save Mm. money, this is where you can save so much money. You can save suffering. You can improve our housing stock, which is great for the landlords as well. And you can Mm. save $6.6 billion, you know, not to mention all the people who die. Exactly. And I was was really interested in the report and and you've made the point about data. Uh, I'm a bit of a data geek. I love to find out what's actually happening. So we now have a clearer idea. There are 300,000 people who basically can't afford power. But what Mm -hmm. really surprised me, and it's good to see the recommendations in the report on this, that the power companies themselves appear not to know, or at least aren't reporting, as you say, how many people live in the households, how often Mm. their power is cut off to people with Mm. prepay, how many people are on prepay? And because, um, you know, we do get some numbers on forced disconnections of postpay. But as you talk about with the the, the hidden hardship here, mm. a lot of people are choosing to turn off their power because they can't afford mm. it. And no one knows. It's no, extraordinary. No. Yeah, it is. It is truly extraordinary. And you you really own some of that work. You can, really can only find out with that qualitative research. And the only way you can get to those whānau is via those in the community who are like basically their gatekeepers. And so they, of course, there's a mm. massive trust and fear and stigma issue and a whakama issue. And so one thing that is really great is I worked with Mercury and Genesis, you know, our two largest retailers over the whole last year, and the report's going to come out soon on hidden hardship in their customers. And like mm. they're, they really reached out to the community and they're Dr. really C, is there any, is, is in, in the In New Zealand, is there, a, is there any um, regulatory requirement for the power companies to consider these kinds of people? Um, no, no, there is not. But this report has a million recommendations around that. And there's the consumer care guidelines, which are voluntary and that they really probably should be made mandatory. And so there's quite a lot of things in there about what the Electricity Authority, mm-hmm. for example, can do to regulate some of these things. And I think it makes sense. And I would actually, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the industry would not actually be averse to some of that as well. Mm-hmm. At least the people in the industry that I talk to and work with. Well, also the poor people are bloody expensive to look after when they get into this kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm reminded of the, the way it works in the UK where, and it's a, and it's an absolute outrage. It's like something from um, 
the young ones that uh which you may you're probably not old enough to remember but I do, uh, yeah. you know that <laughs> at certain at certain, if you, at certain times you have to get you know you you go you go to the shop what well, now you go to the shop and you get a you get a little token and you stick it in your gas meter and your power meter because you're so poor yeah. that you can't yeah. be relied upon to actually pay the bill at the end yeah. possibly even you don't have a bank account and i don't think we have that in new zealand do we but they pay Far higher fees well, than normal. No, we did, have, we did have some of yeah. those, and we still do have, and Dr. Kim O'Sullivan did quite a bit of research on that, some of those prepay meters where you actually wow. fed the $2 coins into it. And they yeah. were so much more expensive, so much more expensive, yeah. They, they certainly weren't yeah. giving Bernard's famous hour of power, which is when, which is when no. Bernard does everything in no. his house. <laughs> I know, but there's 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 a couple of other things where you know if we don't think so this is the whole thing with the just energy transition and Bernard you and I talked about that you know with mm. Dr Saul Griffiths at length at that conference that we met um, you can only have a just energy transition if you if you look at it through an equity lens you know like it's a it's a policy trilemma energy is a policy trilemma I think it's a quadrilemma but the policy trilemma is you have to constantly deal with the politics which is security and access with the economics, which is both the profits and the affordability issue, and then with the environmental stuff, which is around decarbonizing the system and mm. uh, the greenhouse gas implications, which, of course, the energy system is the worst, you know, offender of. But the thing is, you know, like it's the economists that usually have a bit too much power in that system, mm. and apologies, Bernard, I know that maybe your background. But, oh, um, no, no, he's a bloody I'm, journalist. I'm not not one, a, people keep not telling one. me he's an economist. He's a bloody journalist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing is, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't have at the center of that an actual energy justice lens that m ensures that there is a democratic way of how we ensure, you know, the secure, affordable, sustainable access to energy for all, which is the only way you can have a fair and just transition, as Fatih Birol from the International Energy Agency mm. says, who you know mm. I, I work with. Um, you can't do it, and so if we don't know how big the problem is, if if all these fan are kind of mm -hmm. hidden. You know, like, then we can't have a just transition. Dr. C, thank you so much for coming on to the uh, the show tonight. Uh, we'd love to have you on again, particularly for this next report uh, that you've got planned. And I'm really proud that we managed to uh, shine a bit of a light on this thing, which fell into a hole, I think. Uh, you know, we're in a weird yeah. time where everyone's looking other in other places, and it's, it's good. Yeah. And it also reinforced to me... Um, my housing theory of everything, which says that because our housing is so expensive, there's so little money left over. And Absolutely. then when the bill for the power comes along, or even worse, because we missed payment for the bill two years ago, and now we mm -hmm. can't even get access to postpay. Um, exactly. We heard stories of kids who are sleeping in cold houses, getting moldy, and that, and just to fi finally just bring it back to the people, 229 people a year die unnecessarily, often kids, because mm -hmm. they're living in cold, moldy homes and they can't afford the power, let alone the rent, in a country that is rich as hell. And it just, it drives me a, a little bit nuts. Dr. C, thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Dr. C. Thank See you soon. Have a brilliant trip. Cheers. Bernard, my skateboarding dog, we'll just do it quickly because I, I have a feeling yes, skateboarding dog. I usually try to find ones that are so obscure that they haven't been in the New Zealand media so much, but this one possibly has. And I just bloody loved this Australian guy who was you know, caught, caught by a uh, crocodile. And as you know, crocodiles became a specialty, specialty of mine when working with, uh, not just after, before you at Reuters in Sydney. And he said, it was a big grab and he shook me like a rag doll and took off back into the water, pulling me in. 
I was such an in such an awkward position, but by accident, my teeth caught his eyelid. It was pretty thick, like <laughs> holding onto leather. But I jerked back on his eyelid and he let go, he said. All right. So now we know if you're bitten by a crocodile, bite his bloody eyelids. All right. Thank you, Bernard. It's lovely to see you. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.